Well, please uh, do keep your Bibles open and uh, there is an outline as usual on the inside of the bulletin which I, I think you'll find is helpful. Uh, let's, uh, let's ask for the Lord to bless us as we study this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Steve's ministry in Kenya. We're so encouraged by what you're doing through him. Pray that you would keep him faithful to your word. And we thank you this morning for the privilege of an open Bible. Uh, What we know not will you teach us, what we have not will you give us, and what we are not will you make us. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, next Sunday morning, we're going to start a new series here at St Barnabas called The Majesty of God. And uh, the reason that we're doing that is that a right understanding of God is absolutely fundamental to living the Christian life. Uh, More often than not, the reason that so many Christians don't live a distinctively Christian life is that they've never truly encountered the God of the Bible. And the aim of our new series is to put that right. And I'm giving you advance notice of it this morning so that you can be thinking about who you're going to invite and make sure that you yourself are here. But uh, this morning is the last in our current series on prayer. And for the last few weeks we've been sitting at the feet of Uh, the prophet Elijah, probably the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and we've been learning some of the basics. Uh, So far we've learned why we should pray, we've learned something about how to pray, and we've even discovered why some of our prayers are not answered. Now our passage this morning shows us that there is one prayer that is far more urgent than all the others. Uh, It's the prayer that makes all other prayers possible. If you're not yet a Christian, this is the only prayer that you can pray and actually be sure that God is listening. But before we uh, see why that's the case, we need to put the prayer in its context. Uh, Our passage introduces us to a new king called Ahaziah. And it's very striking, isn't it, that although he was the most important man in Israel, we're told almost nothing about him. It's rather a surprise. Uh, We might reasonably expect to be told something about his diplomatic skills, uh, or perhaps how wealthy he was or maybe how successful he was on the battlefield. We're told none of those things. As far as the author is concerned, they're much less important than how this man died. Very early on in the passage we're told that the king had fallen through a lattice window and sustained a critical injury. And even though we've only just met him, By the end of the chapter, he's dead. And that's because the author of the book is inviting us to ask one main question. And that question is, why did Ahaziah die? 
What was the cause of his death? The passage, I think, suggests three reasons. And when we put these three reasons together, we discover, I think, that the text has a challenge for us that is as fresh as if it had been written last week. So why did Ahaziah die? Well, first, he died because he was unmoved by God's anger. The second reason he died was because he was deaf to God's warnings. And then thirdly, he died because, well, obviously, he refused to repent. Well, let's look at those three together for the next few moments. First, he was unmoved by God's anger. Uh, Almost the first thing that we're told about this man is that God was angry with him. The very last verse of 1 Kings makes the point, doesn't it? Have a look at it. The last verse of 1 Kings. He served and worshipped Baal and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger just as his father had done. Now we need to pause and reflect on this. Um, Why was God angry with him? Uh, Were there perhaps any mitigating circumstances? Is there anything in the text to suggest that God was perhaps being unduly harsh? Well, we might not be able to answer those questions, but the one thing we cannot say is that Ahaziah was acting in ignorance. Two weeks ago, we looked at the episode on Mount Carmel. That, of course, had been front-page news throughout Israel. And on that occasion, God had proved his existence by sending fire from heaven, and 450 prophets of Baal had been slaughtered because they had led Israel to worship other gods. Ahaziah therefore knew all about God's wrath. And yet he quite deliberately chose to follow in his father's footsteps. Now the great question is, what on earth makes a person do that? I think the short answer is that Ahaziah was seduced by a lie. You see, Baal worship was far more than a religion. It was uh, in the small print of the treaty between Israel and Jezebel's father, the king of Tyre. And that relationship, you remember, seemed to offer Israel peace and prosperity. So I think it's fair to say that Baal worship was a political device. It encouraged people to put their trust in a man-made scheme. But that trust was completely misplaced. To see just how misplaced it was, won't you quickly turn on to 2 Kings chapter 10 on page 270. 2 Kings chapter 10 page 270. Now this is just a a few short years after King Ahaziah died and a man called Jehu is purging Israel of idolatry. And uh, in verse 27 we read these rather astonishing words. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and people have used it for a latrine to this day. 
Now, is that not striking? Baal worship promised the people health, wealth and happiness. For years, it was the focus of Israel's national life. But the centre of it all, the, the temple of Baal, ended up as a toilet. Now, of course, the temptation for us to put our trust in schemes of human imagination is right under our noses every day. Let me give you an example from recent history here in this country. A few years ago, uh, South Africa hosted the Soccer World Cup. And uh, in the build-up to that event, you may remember, it was presented to us as the solution for most of the nation's problems. Now, don't mishear me. Uh, It was a very good thing that South Africa hosted the Soccer World Cup. It was a marvellous festival of, of sport for millions of soccer fans. But to encourage people to believe that hosting the Soccer World Cup was going to bring lasting peace and prosperity was, in fact, a lie. And, of course, nine years later, we know it was a lie, don't we? Because, quite frankly, nothing has really changed. Now, God hates lies like that. And he's angry about it. How do we know God is angry? Well, because the very first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, um, God becomes angry when people put their first trust in something other than himself. Let's think about this just a little bit more. What's the real problem with that? Well, take, for example, the materialistic dream, the desire for wealth. Why does God get angry when men and women make wealth a God substitute in their lives? Well, one of the main reasons is because these God substitutes promise things that they can never, never deliver. But because in our frailty we can't always see that to be the case, what happens is we believe the promise. And in the end, when it fails to deliver, the God's substitute wrecks people's lives. Now there was a spectacular example of that just a decade ago following the global economic crash of 2008. In the weeks following the crash, there was a string of suicides of formerly very wealthy and highly respected men. The chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, which was a US-based home loan mortgage company, he hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of a leading property auction house shot himself in his car. And a French money manager who had invested the wealth of Uh, many of Europe's royal families lost one and a half billion dollars in an investment scam and he slit his wrists in his office. Now the list goes on, much too gruesome to go into more detail here, but the message is clear, isn't it? In the minds of these men, wealth and success was what gave their lives meaning and significance. 
And when the source of their wealth was removed, as far as they could see, there was no longer any reason to go on living. But I think there's something else behind the bare facts, the bare facts of these awful tragedies, that is actually a wake-up call for all of us. Quickly turn on to Romans 1, page 794. Romans 1, page 794. It's a familiar passage, but I want to show you a connection that we don't always necessarily see. I want to show you why a person who is normally perfectly sane and rational can become completely foolish and believe the lie that, for example, money and wealth or any other God's God's substitute can make their lives worth living. Come with me to verse 18. The wrath of God, says Paul, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Pause on that. So when men suppress the truth about God by choosing to believe a lie, God gets angry. But what does God do about that? How do we see the anger of God being expressed? Look down to verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, when we give something other than God first place in our lives, the primary mark of God's anger against us is a depraved mind. We lose the ability to think straight. And so back in 2 Kings on page 261, we have a perfect illustration of the point. There's Ahaziah, he's staring death in the face. But in this most critical hour of his life, when we might think about um, that he would reflect on everything that he knows about God, that he might reflect on the prospect of facing God's anger beyond the grave, instead of turning to God, he looks in exactly the wrong place. He turns to Baal. In other words, he's no longer thinking straight. So Ahaziah was unmoved by God's anger and in the end he perished. But there was a second reason and that is that Ahaziah was deaf to God's warnings. In the passage, God gives Ahaziah several warnings. I wonder if you noticed them. Uh, there was the injury that he sustained when he fell through the lattice window. There was the fire from heaven that consumed all those poor soldiers. And there was the personal message from Elijah, God's prophet. All those things were warnings to the king to change direction before it was too late. Now, I should emphasise that God is under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to do this. 
Ahaziah has done nothing to deserve these warnings from God. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that God does not desire the death of the wicked, but rather that he should turn from his wickedness and live. In other words, even the Ahaziahs of this world, men who have quite knowingly provoked God's anger, they receive warnings from God, which God provides as a gift of sheer grace. Now, warnings, of course, may not always be to our liking. But it's worth remembering, I think, isn't it, that warnings are a part of life. We can't get on without them. Uh, when When the weatherman says there's going to be a fierce storm tomorrow, you can choose not to go out of the house. When the doctor says you have a heart condition... Uh, you can choose to change your diet and start taking some exercise. When the economist says there's going to be a recession, you can choose to adjust your lifestyle. Can you see that in each case, the warning does contain some bad news? But it's bad news that you and I need to hear in order to avoid disaster. Now, throughout the Bible, there is a pattern of God in his mercy and grace giving men and women warnings about the future so that they know what's coming and can take appropriate action. One of the most important of these patterns is contained in our passage this morning. You'll notice in verse 6, that the king's messengers return to Ahaziah with the warning from Elijah that if the king persists in consulting Baal, he will certainly die. Now notice verse 7. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt round his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Now what I want you to do is to keep that description of Elijah's appearance in your mind and turn quickly to Matthew chapter 3 on page 681. I'm sorry for all the page turning today. I think this is our last cross-reference, but we all need to be there. Matthew chapter 3, page 681. Now, in this chapter, we are introduced to John the Baptist. And I want you, please, to notice the description we're given of him in verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. Now, both Matthew and Mark make a point of describing John's appearance like this, because they want us to see that John the Baptist looked just like Elijah. But why? What on earth is the point? Are they trying perhaps to tell us that John and Elijah both went to the same gentleman's outfitters in Samaria? Is that the point? I think not. 
No, they want us to see that John not only looks the same as Elijah, but that he has the same message. What was that message? Look down to verse 11 on page 681. John the Baptist said, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now I think it's immediately obvious from that, isn't it, that um, John the Baptist was a very straight talker, just like Elijah. His message was, of course, terrifyingly simple. He was warning people that a day is coming when the Lord Jesus will separate the entire human race into just two groups. In John's analogy, the wheat represents those who trusted in Christ, that they will be gathered up by Jesus and taken <laughs> to heaven, but the chaff represents those who've refused to listen to God's warnings. And just as the chaff is absolutely no use to the farmer and the only thing he can do with it is burn it, so at his coming, Jesus will see to it that all who've ignored God's warnings are burned with unquenchable fire. Now I know perfectly well that some people will listen to John's words or they will read the account of Elijah uh, calling down fire from heaven on the soldiers and they'll smile to themselves and they'll say, ha ha, well of course God doesn't actually deal with people like that anymore. Can I say that the very clear testimony of the New Testament is that when Jesus returns, that is precisely what's going to happen. But it hasn't happened yet. So how do we answer people, the cynics, when they say that? Well, as I was preparing, I discovered something in John the Baptist's words that I'd never really understood properly before. I noticed that in verses 11 and 12, if you're still there, John seems to be suggesting that when Jesus baptises some people with the Holy Spirit and separates the wheat from the chaff, John seems to be suggesting that those two things would be part of the same event. He seems to be saying that the day of blessing and the day of wrath will be one and the same. And someone might be thinking, well, <laughs> John just got it wrong. Just goes to show you can't trust the Bible. But was he wrong? When Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed, didn't he, all of God's wrath for you and me. He experienced what it's going to be like to be separated from God so that you and I don't have to be, even though it's precisely what we deserve. 
And to all those who trust in his death, Jesus has given the Holy Spirit, which of course is a sign that I belong to God's family and I have nothing whatever to fear. So there is a sense, isn't there, in which John was absolutely right. Because on the cross, wrath and blessing are seen side by side in the same event. And so therefore the cross is both an invitation and it's a warning. It's an invitation to come to Christ and to have eternal protection from the wrath of God. But it's also a warning of the punishment that awaits all those who refuse to do that. Every day that goes by without that happening might be the last. And the Bible gives us plenty of warnings about it. Now in our passage back in 2 Kings, God sent a personal warning to Ahaziah to stop living a life that he knew was displeasing to God, but he didn't listen. And in the end, he paid the ultimate price. So Ahaziah was unmoved by God's anger. He was deaf to God's warnings. And therefore, thirdly, he refused to repent. Well, I hope you're back with me in 2 Kings on page 261 because there's a second character in the story and we must have our eye carefully on him. You remember that the king had sent two squads of 50 soldiers to deal with Elijah. Both of them had been consumed by fire from heaven. But let's pick up the story at verse 13. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these fifty men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, don't be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. Now as I've been thinking about it, I've come to see that it is the captain rather than the king who should be the focus of our attention in this story. The author, you see, is showing us that this is how to escape God's righteous anger. What's so very interesting about him is that he started out in exactly the same place in relation to God as Ahaziah. Think about it. There he was, sent on a mission to eliminate Elijah. And therefore, like Ahaziah, this man started out as an enemy of God. Also, like Ahaziah, he was confronted with the awful reality of God's wrath. He knew precisely what had happened to the other soldiers. 
But whilst Ahaziah refused to repent and perished, this man's response was completely different. Notice first that he had a different attitude. Because where Ahaziah had been proud and defiant, this captain comes to Elijah on his knees. In other words, he comes, doesn't he, in an attitude of humility. Then second, he had a different request. Uh, Where Ahaziah had lived and died in complete denial of God's wrath, this man prays for mercy. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men. And then thirdly, notice that he had a different understanding of all these events. He understood perfectly well from what had happened to the first two groups of soldiers that without a miracle, he was heading for the same fate. Verse 14, see, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now, have respect for my life. It must have been uh, the same kind of fear that gripped the congregation in August 1756 when George Whitfield preached at William Grimshaw's parish in Yorkshire. Uh, Grimshaw had erected a pulpit outside the south wall of the parish church so that the number of hearers would not be restricted to the capacity of the church building. When Whitfield stood up to preach, there was a massive crowd of several thousand people and uh, Whitfield announced his text as follows, Hebrews 9.27, which says, Just as man is destined to die once and after that the judgment. Before he could speak another word, there was a wild scream from the middle of the congregation. Pastor Grimshaw hurried to investigate and uh, after a few minutes he came back to tell Whitfield that someone had died and the news was announced to the crowd. Whitfield began again. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment and there was another scream from somewhere else in the crowd someone else had dropped dead. When the people had quietened down, Whitfield started again and announced his text again. And from that moment on, you could hear a pin drop. The crowd listened with the greatest care to every word Whitfield spoke. Now, why did they listen? Well, they were terrified. They were frightened. Well, of course they were. But you see, it was a healthy fear, wasn't it? It was the fear that John Newton writes about in the most famous hymn in the English language. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Now, friends, that is what we have in two kings. The third captain was terrified. Please will you notice the outcome. Unlike the other two captains... This captain came down the mountain alive. 
as one commentator puts it, he knelt, he pleaded, he trembled, he lived. In other words, this man repented. Now, can I say that repentance is a rather strange word and many people think that it means something like um, pull your socks up or turn over a new leaf. It is, of course, neither of those things. Repentance is a gift from Almighty God and it comes in two stages. First, it is the ability to see my life from God's point of view and to realise that without God's gracious intervention I will end up like the soldiers in two kings consumed by fire. So when I repent I put my trust in the intervention that God has provided for me in the cross of Jesus Christ. From that moment on I'm eternally secure. No fire, no judgment, only the love of God and the joy of being a member of his family. Now, although I don't suppose the captain in our story would have described his experience in those terms, nevertheless, that is the substance of his prayer. And I think I hardly need explain why it's the most urgent prayer of all. It's the prayer that makes all other praying possible. If you've never prayed that prayer, can I say that you can pray as much as you like? God will not be listening. But once you have prayed that prayer, the gates of heaven are thrown open wide and the Father is listening to you whenever you choose to speak to him. Now most of you know that. But with repentance, there is a second stage. And the reason that I mention it is that far too many Christians hardly ever think about it. But it is actually the only way that Christians can ever hope to experience any significant personal transformation. You see, I think what happens for most of us is that after the initial excitement of becoming a Christian, ever so slowly we begin to reintroduce the God substitutes back into our lives. And we start looking for them to provide the meaning and significance that, well, quite honestly, only God can give us. Now, friends, as soon as we do that, we shut ourselves off from the possibility of real change and growth as a Christian. And if we go on far enough down that particular road, we might not actually lose our salvation, but we will have no sense of the power of God at work within us. And the point is, you see, that daily repentance is the only way to keep that channel open. That's why Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation said the whole of the Christian life is repentance. What does that mean in practice? Well, as we close, I'd like to read you a shorter extract from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. 
He says this, quote, The repentance that really changes your heart and your relationship with God begins when you recognise that your main sin, the sin under the rest of your sins, is your self-salvation project. In both our bad deeds and in our good deeds, we are seeking to be our own saviours and lords. And Tim Keller says, repentance is confessing the things besides God himself that you have been relying on for your hope, significance and security. And that means we should repent not only for the things we've done wrong, like lying or cheating, but also for the motivations beneath our good works. End quote. It's time to pray. Normally I would lead us in prayer, but I thought it would be a fitting end to our series on prayer if we all prayed the prayer of repentance. That's going to appear on the screen behind me. I'll read it through once so that you can get the gist of where we're going, and then we'll pray it together. Father, I've always believed in you and Jesus Christ, But my heart's most fundamental trust was elsewhere, in my own competence and decency. This has only brought me trouble. Please forgive me. As far as I know my own heart, today I give it to you. I transfer my trust to you and ask that you would receive and accept me, not for anything I have done, but because of everything Christ has done for me. Are you ready? Let's stand. Together. Father, I've always believed in you and Jesus Christ, But my heart's most fundamental trust was elsewhere, in my own competence and decency. This has only brought me trouble. Please forgive me. As far as I know my own heart, today I give it to you. I transfer my trust to you and ask that you would receive and accept me not for anything I have done, but because of everything Christ has done for me. Amen. Do please be seated.